Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast, the internet's best resource for getting ahead as a student or possibly even a non-student, but a terrible resource for learning how to chisel your own face into Mount Rushmore. In fact, I don't think there are... All four faces? All of them. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Into one. Now, I I am working on a new online course on how to clandestinely chisel your own face to replace all of the presidents. In fact, actually, wait, is it? It's all presidents, right? It's know, Washington. Man. It's Lincoln. I went there this one time. Is uh, I think Roosevelt, and then the fourth one. I don't remember all four. It's like none of them. I are... I feel like I should know. I don't know who man. is on Mount Rushmore. Oh, Jefferson. Okay, my guess is that it's Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt. But I could be wrong about that. The only reason I'm bringing this up is because there's a tweet from somebody named Smart Wealth Mindset. Uh, I guess they wrote an article about people who helped them learn about money, and they have photoshopped a picture of Mount Rushmore that has my face on it. Nice. (laughs) Next to Pat Flynn from Smart Passive Income and Matt and Andrew from Listen Money Matters. (laughs) That's the real one. So this this is what Mount Rushmore should look like, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, following my new online course. Only three easy payments and one hard payment. Well, and the best part is that your hair is still darker. So, like, they'd have to spray paint the mountain or something. Oh, yeah. We're going to spray paint the mountain. So just for, like, a beard? Oh, yeah. It's going to be – it's going it's, it's to – you know, it's great. not really going to be, like, going for the statuesque look. It's going to be going for, like, the illusion that I literally am popping out of the mountain as a gigantic head. Yeah. Like, every visitor to Mount Rushmore will wonder, like, did they ingest some sort of psychoactive substance? And, and they will at the gift shop. Away. Yes. It's, in, it's right out front. <laughs> anyway. All right. So we're doing an episode today on, um, am I reading this correctly? Ultra Lord? Yeah, it's like Ultra Lord. We're talking, about, we're talking about Ultra Lord okay. today. Like your top favorite episodes or comic uh, books from Ultra I Lord? I was a fan of the movie. <laughs> the Ultra Lord movie? Yeah. yeah. Or you mean the Jimmy Neutron movie? Both. Everything. All right. So no, what we're going to talk about is a, a book that came out. I don't remember the exact date, but I think it was late last year, yeah. called yeah. Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career <clears throat> by Scott H. Young, who is a blogger that I've been following for many years. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, I've never met Scott personally, though I think I've talked to him on Twitter a few times. Hmm. And if I am not incorrect, I believe he lives in Vancouver or somewhere aroundabouts. Because I remember talking to him about uh, how I may be going up there again at some point in the future to hang out with my friend Noah from Polyphonic. And he's like, hey, I'm there too. I know so. of a lot of people that are up there. Northwest so many, has a lot of people that so I'm aware Vancouver of. Vancouver people, yeah. And like the music or video games or all, all sorts of just things. Joey from Better Ideas is in Vancouver-ish area. Um, Linus Tech Tips there in Surrey. Yeah, so many Vancouverites. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm assuming a lot of the game dev people you're thinking of are in Seattle. Also Vancouver. Or, or in Vancouver. Both. Maybe Portland. Oh, and the dude who runs the company that made my DVR pads. Portland. Oh. So many cool people. Northwest is a good place. My theory is it's raining all the time, so the only thing they can do is just stay inside and build DVR pads or that makes write sense. books about learning ultra in an ultra way. That. That's got to be it. I assume that that is true. Building DDR pads is an, an adaptive response. Yeah. 
terrain. <laughs> to, to the rain. <laughs> okay, so to put this up front, I have not read this book. In fact, the last three months of my life, I have been absolutely consumed with filmmaking education. So the last quote-unquote book that I read is something I linked to in my latest newsletter, which is just this online workflow guide from frame.io. And it's like 100,000 words of Hollywood level pro workflow stuff. So I now understand color depth and like color spaces. I know what Rec. 709 is. I know what HDR color is. I know like BT 2020, all this stuff. But I have not had time to read productivity books as a result. That seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, which is fine, you know, because I have you. Yeah, I already read it. Yeah. Problem solved. So this is going to be an episode where you shall school me on what it truly takes to be an ultra learner. Mostly the ultra lord stuff. Yeah. So aside from ultra lord, you know, what's this book about? It's it's about the concept of ultra learning, which he defines as a strategy for acquiring skills and knowledge that is both self-directed and intense. Now, this is because uh, Scott has done several challenges of his own. Ultra learning challenges. Right. Scott's the guy who did the entire, what was it, the entire self-directed MIT computer science program in a year. Yep. If I remember correctly. Yeah, he's just using the online free resources like the class lectures and then testing himself and those sort of things. Went through the whole thing in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I found out about this book completely separately from, I didn't realize that you knew of this person because I just found a review of it on the Fluent in Three Months blog. Wait, you didn't know? No, nope, not at all. This is a coincidence. He sent me a free copy of the book. Coincidence entirely. <laughs> okay. I found it on the Fluent in Three Months blog. <laughs> okay. Because it mentioned that he he learned languages through ultra learning oh, as yeah. well. Because Scott does he does he speak Chinese? Uh, or I, I it, think maybe another language. I can't remember. I now. think Mandarin might have been one of them. Mm-hmm. He had studied, gone through a whole year speaking no English. So every That's every right. every three months, it would be a different country trying to learn that language. Mm-hmm. So that sort of thing. It obviously is interesting to me. But the thing that actually made me say, I should read this book and buy it immediately, was there was also a photo showing how he learned how to draw much more realistic faces in 30 days. Oh, do you have the photo? I do, but I'm going to... Jamie, pull the clip. Dang, 30 days. I mean, that's so I incredible. S- so wow. I saw that, and then I was like, well, that's real. That's really impressive. And uh, I don't think this will be very visible, but here you go. <laughs> I'll put it by my face where everything should be focused. And yeah, just enhance. Like just enhance. Otherwise, it'll be in the show notes. Um, but I saw that, and I was just like, well, that's obviously – there's something there, mm-hmm. clearly, because I can't deny those results. Yeah. So – and I was also starting to consider my New Year's goals, so I was, I'm going to get re-motivated, revived. Revived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to quote – Nobody else will ever know that reference. old, long-deleted Spotify album. Um, it's a good song. You should repost that one song. I'll just, I'll just, I'll remaster it. Or remaster. I got to remaster yeah. it. The recording quality. Oh, wasn't hey, we great could, back we then. could redo the beat. I could on my synth. I could do, I could do it all better. Except for the beat was more of um, like a circuit bending kind of thing. So we're gonna have to take apart an NES. Oh yeah, it used it used bent circuit samples. It was pretty cool. But anyway, that's why I decided to read it. Complete coincidence that apparently you got a free copy and mm-hmm. know the person and all this other stuff. I had no idea. It's less of a coincidence than you think. Because well, I mean, Benny connected. Lewis, who runs Fluent in Three Months, who is a good friend of mine, yeah. also knows Scott. I yeah. think he knows Scott a lot better than I do. Yeah, I mean, it's, but, it's all connected, mm. but it would be hard for me to avoid that kind of connection. We're all part of the weird 
cabal of internet productivity it's a cabal. slash language learning bloggers. I'm not a language learning blogger, but I feel like there is quite a bit of overlap between academic skills and productivity people on the internet and language learning people on the internet. Yeah. I know at least three people who do language learning content pretty well. So and it makes sense because people who are learning languages, they want to learn how to learn those languages faster. Yeah. So they often come to like, you know, speed reading videos or or memorization videos, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. that's everything that this book is about. And um, he lays so, out the concept in nine nine principles okay. of ultra learning. So I got, I, got, I got a couple notes for each. Obviously, okay. I can't go over the whole book. Just read the book or get an audio book or something. And, so this um, is just an overview of the book. And I'm interested going to touch on each of the nine things, but I can't dive into all the nuance. This will be a five-hour. It yeah, might as well be, have been the audiobook at that point. This would be really long. <laughs> yeah, we just uh, we're just going to in an could, unauthorized um, way read the entire book <laughs> on yeah, the podcast. Yeah, now, I, I thought maybe we could go over the nine principles. Okay, maybe see if there are any things that connect with stuff that we've done, mm-hmm. or maybe areas where we're like, I should have done that. That would have been smarter. Yeah, just to. Yeah, that's bring, what I'm curious bring the about. examples home because there were actually a couple of things in here that either they were really resonating with me. Mm-hmm. So, all right, we'll queue up lesson uh, one. Number then. one is meta learning. So it's actually pretty pretty useful that you just mentioned how people go to language learning blogs to learn how to do all this stuff mm-hmm. because meta learning is learning about the thing that you want to learn and how to learn it. You're laying the groundwork. Learning about the thing you want so to learn. So an example here that will make this more clear is if you're learning, uh, the example he gives is that if you're learning Chinese characters, mm-hmm. you will learn that uh, a certain Hansu that I can't show you the illustration, I can't show you the actual character right now, but uh, a certain Chinese character means fire. That is just learning. You're learning the language. That's an actual thing with the meaning. And you said, so you said Hansu, what does that mean? Uh, that's the Chinese word for kanji. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, my bad. Uh, Which for anyway. people who don't speak Japanese is oh. just... The complex characters I have a little bit of a, often represent. Yeah, I don't want to things. turn this into a language learning podcast. <laughs> uh, anyway, the the you know the cool like uh, illustration illustrative looking characters from Chinese and Japanese. In many so, cases, one kanji represents an entire word. Yeah, so you'll find one that means fire. Okay, that's just learning a language regularly. But when you learn that those same symbols, this applies also to both Chinese and Japanese in this case. When you learn that those symbols are often organized by radicals, which mm-hmm. are smaller chunks of images that get put together to make a character, and that those radicals tend to inform a little bit about either the word's meaning or its pronunciation, which is really useful, that extra side thing is meta-learning. You're learning mm. about the thing so that you can learn the thing better. Because you could totally learn... I'm quite sure there are many native speakers of both languages, both both Mandarin and Japanese, that don't have any idea what how to explain radicals. Yeah. Like, they have just done it. It's just natural. It would be harder for an English speaker to explain its grammar than somebody who just finished learning English. So this sounds like just kind of a way to put a label on the practice of learning the underlying systems and components of what you're trying to learn rather than just attacking it in a very direct way. Yeah, so it's it's like, first, lay a little bit of groundwork... Just so that you don't go in completely the opposite direction yeah. of where you might want to go. So maybe an, uh, another analogy could be learning how recursion actually works instead of just staring at code that makes recursion happen and trying to memorize how the code like is laid out. 
maybe. Would that be an example? Or I guess I think I would just consider that more of a subtopic. Okay. Um, but maybe learning what kind of editors, what the difference between a few coding editors. Hmm. Like you need to learn how everything works before you can even get into the work itself. Okay. If I had to compare a mirrorless and a DSLR camera before I got into photography, it would be meta-learning in my understanding to to learn that and then be like, mm. oh, well, I should get this camera because of this reason because I didn't need to learn that at all to take photos, but yeah. I it was useful for me to know it first. Okay. But meta-learning is the most abstract one that is going to have the least obvious things to just tell you to do. So for any given skill or topic area, how would one start the process of meta-learning? And how do you know how much time to spend in meta-learning versus more traditional learning? Um, now, I can't remember if it's from this book or something else. All of this stuff floats around in my head now. But I probably wouldn't spend too long on meta-learning. Maybe, maybe a week or two. Maybe some sort of just initial research mm. before you get into it. Like if I wanted to, if I didn't know anything about language learning and I wanted to start learning Japanese in March, I would probably be well served if I spent the next couple of weeks kind of like, what are all the resources available to me? What am I going to need to know? What am I in for? Oh, mm. there are three writing systems. Okay, that's good to know ahead of time. Um, what else is going to happen here? And then I can maybe plan out how I'm going to tackle those so that mm. when I get to it, I don't start in March and then be completely overwhelmed, like, well, I, I was just, I just opened up Duolingo, started pressing buttons. I don't know what any of this is, and I'm really confused, and it's hard to categorize it in my head, mm. and therefore it's hard to understand it. Mm. Okay. But, yeah, just maybe a couple of weeks, just like the exploratory phases of yeah. learning a new skill. So, so, number two, then? Yeah, number two is, now this one we actually talk about a lot, so it's, it's going to be real easy to get okay. through this one. Focus. Okay. It's, we talk about this all the time. So um, the one the one topic that, that we've, uh, we've probably covered everyone's heard about all the time five thousand times, but yeah. nobody actually does, yeah. including me. So uh, you know, he talks about procrastination a little bit. Um, he talks about how usually what we think about that's unpleasant in a task mm-hmm. or maybe pleasant in a distraction, it's usually just a bit of an impulse, and it wouldn't last long mm-hmm. once we started. You know, I feel a lot of a resistance, like this is going to be the worst thing ever. Yeah. And I'll, I've put off an article for several months thinking, oh, God, it's going to be so hard. There's so much work. And I sat down and did it in like three hours. Mm. The resistance that I thought, the, the unpleasant feeling I thought would be there was like 20 minutes long. Yeah. So obviously things like Pomodoro sessions where you just sit the timer and try to go through it, they can help you merely because that unpleasant thing that you think exists is just a little bit of an impulse. It's not nearly what you imagined it is. Yeah. The way so the way my brain perceives the act of writing a video is like I would equate it to how you would perceive trying to run headfirst through like a 20-foot long block of ballistics gel. To make you know a totally relatable metaphor here. Everybody so every, does everyone's that. done this. I've before. done that. But in reality, it's more like just running through a couple of kids playing Red Rover. Like it's gonna there's some resistance right at the beginning of it, but then like you break through it and then there's just nothing. And you're fine. Yeah. You get into it. But 
no matter how many times I tell myself this, my brain still thinks um, the entire process of writing this article is going to suck and it's going to be like slogging your way through ballistics gel and every single step is going to be a fight. So let me go read this review of this camera first because, you know, that's also kind of work. I need to know about that. Yeah. And so, then the longer you put it off, like the more scary you think it is. You're like, well, now yeah. I'm out of practice. I'm rusty. Mm-hmm. How am I going to do it now? I've spent... Yeah, I don't even know what the topic is. I have to do the refresher first, and that's going to take time. Uh, mm-hmm. Might as well not. I was watching this. Uh, there's a channel called This Guy Edits, and it's a wonderful channel for anybody who's doing their own videos. And this guy is like a, a dude who does literal, like you know, short films that have won Sundance, like an actual professional editor. But he has a YouTube channel too, um, and his editing on the YouTube channel is also great. But he did. Uh, a video where it was kind of about how to edit a documentary. And he was talking to the lead editor for a documentary called The Square, which is all about the uh, Egyptian revolution that happened just recently. Hmm. And uh, just one little tidbit that I remember from this, the lead editor was talking about, you know, the productivity that goes into getting a documentary done. And he was saying, like, you just need to worry about being fast and making moves as quickly as you can because if you don't, you're going to get into this headspace where you're afraid to start making cuts. You're afraid to start putting things together because you don't know if it's going to be perfect. And uh, just this one little sentence he said, it's like when you start putting clips next to each other and you start making a mess on your timeline, that in itself will give you ideas. And I realized like, yeah, he's right. You know, when I start editing, it it's like the process of putting together a puzzle and like, I'm like, all right, does this piece fit here? No, it doesn't, but maybe it goes over here. And like, you have to try, like you have to actually make those moves. Yeah. I, I have to get a lot those of problems ideas. where I'm like, okay, now before I start my day, I would like to preemptively solve every problem I might face today. Yeah. Go. We got a thousand problems. We'll solve them all and then we'll start. Mm-hmm. But that, that is a great way to erase my mornings. <laughs> yep. And then I have to solve all new problems now because, mm-hmm. because I've wasted so much time. But um, he, he talks about also um, how the habit for working on something can fade. So even mm. if you worked, even if you used to meditate 20 minutes a day yeah. for years, if right now you're trying to get back to it after a break and you can't, you keep putting it off mm-hmm. or you just can't get through the 20 minutes or you just, you don't want to do it, then sometimes we need to start over anyway, even if we should have been better. It's like, like working out. If, yeah. if I got super buff gave up working out for three years and came back, I, I can't lift the same. So we got to start back with like five minutes and then moving up from there. Mm-hmm. And um, actually the most useful thing that I found in this section was just the acknowledgement that different types of tasks need different environments for focus sometimes. Yeah, I think you're right. So he's he mentioned complex tasks. They need like super direct focus. So when I'm doing some sort of coding, I need to be com- – there needs to be no one around me. Mm-hmm. The act- Even just somebody sitting around me, not talking to me, I'm actively confused mm-hmm. and I cannot focus on my work. It throws me off entirely if, mm-hmm. if I'm coding. But if I'm doing a bunch of smaller tasks, I absolutely cannot be trusted to do those completely alone in a focused environment. I need music. I need coffee shop noises. I need people. I need something that kind of eases the tension so that I don't take the amount of small things I'm doing ser- so seriously. Yeah. Like they're not worthy of my full focus, so mm. I, I don't want to give it to them. Yeah, that makes sense. And I definitely find that, well, I guess it's a little different for me because 
the probably the well it's it's tough to say because uh, it's either the writing or the editing for the writing I definitely do best when I go out somewhere even though there are people around me but I just I just put the headphones on and I'm just like good to go well headphones are pretty good at that though the de- the noise canceling stuff mm-hmm. yeah it helps a that's lot that's a really good way for isolation regardless mm-hmm. I can't focus even if because I'm like what if I have to pull what if somebody says something and I need to pull out my headphone mm. I'm thinking way too many steps ahead so yeah, and I, I definitely like no do. I have more trouble focusing if, like, I go somewhere with Anna because a lot of times she'll ask for feedback. And I'm just like, what I should do is be like, hey, can I have, like, an hour, just no interruptions? But what I actually do is not say anything because I'm trying to be polite. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I'm caught between this, like, dichotomy of wanting to be available for feedback but also wanting to focus. And yeah. uh, those cannot exist together. Yeah, that's my thing. I anticipate the interruption, and then I act as if it was already there. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, yeah, unnecessary. So, what's our third anyway, element? Yeah, the, the third thing is directness. Uh, this is the part where it started getting into stuff where I was like, I haven't necessarily heard people say this before. Okay, and I thought this was really cool. It started off with a quote from you know our boy Leo Devi. I miss, I miss, miss have a, hearing from him. I always have a good quote from my it's, boy. Leo it's Divi. been a bit, but. The quote is, he can, who can go to the fountain. He who can go to the fountain does not go to the water jar. And that's, mm. uh, that was basically Da Vinci talking about his feelings on people learning only from teachers. Because oh, yeah. he was like, I can discover and understand and learn this stuff myself. And that is better than to just have somebody bring it to me. Mm. Now, later he did open up a little bit more to other forms of education. But... I digress. The point is the directness of learning for yourself is a completely different experience from yeah. merely reading some PowerPoint slides. Yeah. And that was that was a big thing um, in college for me because I, I noticed like a lot of my friends to study for tests, they would just open up the lecture slides and scroll through them instead of sitting down and working problems. You know, it's a very indirect method. I think I'm just going to learn how to do this by osmosis. It's also a very ineffective method. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my, my brain gravitates immediately towards understanding music theory and understanding keys and things like that. I can sit there and, you know, try to memorize, like, all right, the key of D minor has these notes in it. But when I directly go to the piano or to the guitar and find those notes and then play them and then, all right, all right, I'm going to build the chords, build a triad, or right, I'm going to build my second triad, my third triad, now I'm going to try first inversion for each of them, second inversion, and I'm going to just like hit them over and over again. Then I start to intuitively understand every aspect of the key yeah, much more quickly than if I were to just sit there being like, all right, I'm looking at it. Here's the first inversion. Okay, I get it. I get it. Just like looking at it in a book, you know? Yeah. Like you could learn it that way, but why, why do that when you could go sit at the piano and play those inversions? Yeah, and basically the core tenet of this section is that you should make your learning process as close to the situation or context you want to use the skill in mm. as possible. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a big problem with schools because you'll you'll graduate from college, you have to relearn everything as soon as you get to your job. Yeah, because you've only ever learned things from PowerPoint slides or multiple choice things, or in a language class you've only ever learned how to respond to like the same five conversations. Yeah, and it's just. Basically, the concept of transfer, the idea Mm. that we learn skills in one area and can just freely bring them over to another area, 
is a lot weaker than we would like it to be, at least when it comes to the abstractions we use in school. Yeah. Like the skills don't really transfer that much because your brain doesn't have the pathways built to access that knowledge in that particular way. Mm -hmm. So just like you might be able to take four years of French in high school and you can still read it, you learned how to do that, but you can't think of like any words at all in a conversation. It's because the context is different. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to remember it that way without doing it that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I guess like when you build neural pathways that always start from a specific area, then it's very difficult to access like the middle of it. Yeah, you're, you're making starting that knowledge learned. incredibly rigid mm-hmm. and you need it to be flexible so that you can actually use it. And you get that through direct interaction in many different situations until you've got tons of different examples of what you might do yeah. with this skill set. And now it's open up and you can transfer the skill a little better. Mm-hmm. You can transfer pieces of skills once you've gotten really good at them. But in the beginning, if if all you did was like get a C in your class doing the homework, you probably won't be able to do the skill that they want you to do that much. Yeah. Okay. So, so far we have meta-learning, learning about the thing you're going to learn. Yeah. We so have lay some figuring groundwork. out how to build focus. And then we have the directness with which you approach your topic. Yeah. So that's the first third of it. All right. So next one? The next one is drill. Drill. Okay. Yeah. So basically, just do it over and over and over again. Find your weaknesses specifically. Oh, okay. And drill those. So he he talks about the rate determining step, which is a chemistry term for the slowest part of a a reaction with several steps because it determines the overall speed. It's the slowest one and everything's waiting for it. So it's basically the slowest hiker metaphor we've used in previous episodes. And and, (laughs) yes, I, I do, in fact, prefer to call it your Russell. Because Russell from up is clearly the slowest hiker. But you have a whole group of hikers, and they're walking in a single file line. The whole group, if they want to stick together, is only as fast as the slowest hiker. And anything you can do to improve the speed of the slowest hiker, give his backpack to one of the faster kids, now the whole line is faster in the most efficient way possible. Mm -hmm. So similarly, you want to find your weakness the biggest weakness you have in whatever concept you're trying to work through because that's the most efficient way for you to get better. Yeah. If uh, if I'm learning a language and I don't have good pronunciation, that's going to hold me back from every conversation. Every conversation is going to mm. feel so difficult. The most e- the most easy greeting or a conversation about like politics or something. It doesn't matter. I can't make the words come out of my mouth. Even yeah. if they're all in my head, it doesn't help. So the most efficient way to get better isn't to go keep learning more words. That doesn't, that doesn't help me. If I help one thing, it'll help everything else. And uh, I do this with piano as well mm. because if I'm uh, trying to do a section and I keep missing a note, then what I can do is do that section and then like right before I hit it, I'll freeze wherever my hand is right before I'm about to hit that. And I'll be like, ah, oh, my elbow's too far out. Or this finger got caught under that key. I see why I keep missing. And you can find your weaknesses, isolate them, work on that piece, and then mm. insert it into the final puzzle Yeah, where it works again. I found with guitar, uh, my big weakness right now is descending on scales. It's very weird to me because, like, I can ascend a scale very smoothly and... 
I don't even know what you call it, but you know, like that where you go down a note, or I guess you go down two notes and then back up one and then down two and then back up one. So it's just like like that going down so easy, but just straight up descending a scale, it's much slower. I don't know what it is. So when I practice now, a lot of my time practicing is just descend this scale, work on the smoothness of it. I don't know. I don't know what exactly it is. I think part of it is when you're ascending a scale, you're say like my index finger is holding down like the fifth fret and my, uh, my, my ring finger is going for the seventh. That is closer to where I'm hitting the pick. So the accuracy doesn't matter quite as much because it may end up just being like a bit of a hammer on, but descending a scale, if I'm not holding all three frets and then just letting go, if I'm just trying to like go one finger, next finger, next finger, then I might pick during the transition and it'll just hit like, it'll just like make the string sound bad. Hmm. I don't know. That's my theory. But in any case, I have to practice that a lot more. Yeah, and part of what my piano teacher has been having me do is start the song from this measure instead. Do this by itself. Can you start there, mm-hmm. or do you literally only know it mm-hmm. once you start from the beginning? Well, it kind of reminds me of uh, when I was a, you know, a kid playing Guitar Hero, there was a practice mode where you could say, like, I'm going to start from here, I think. So I would just, like, loop that section over and over and over, over again to learn, like, the Through the Fire and Flame solo or something. <laughs> Yeah. And then a big one for me recently has been video editing. So I've always, I've long considered my weak point in video editing to be music. Because I never quite understood how to make background music sound good. And I would listen through tracks and be like, oh, this doesn't sound good. And for the longest time, just like with math as a, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I'm just not good at that. I just I don't have that, that skill. I'm not good at figuring out background music. But lately... I realized that's my weak point, so I'm gonna worry. I'm like, I'm just gonna focus in on that. So I've been watching all these documentaries and paying really close attention to films. Like, all right, how's the music interacting with the dialogue? At what point does it go away? What kind of note is it ending on? Is it like, are we waiting for a soft part in the song, or is it like a big high note and then it just ends mm. there? And I've been trying to kind of replicate what I've learned in my own videos. And with the last couple, I've been realizing, like, oh, I kind of understand this now. And I've been able to craft some moments that feel really good. Yeah, if you just focus on that one little thing, it doesn't have to take all that long before you realize how much you can understand it. Mm-hmm. Especially just to a functional level, like it probably isn't going to take that long if yeah. you have a vague idea of what you're doing anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay, so number five, Mambo number five, is retrieval. Okay. Um, as uh, people, so active learning, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, basically, we learn things better when we try to remember them ourselves rather than again s- scanning a PowerPoint slide and going, "Yeah, I probably learned that." Yeah, I read the words, and I, I already knew that. But I really liked this next quote that he had in here. He, he presented a paradox, and it's. If the learning task feels easy and smooth, we are more likely to believe we've learned it. If the task feels like a struggle, we've, we'll feel like we haven't learned it yet. And yet the complete opposite is true, because only when you feel like you're struggling are you actually learning and pushing your brain. If it feels easy, like reading through a PowerPoint slide, that, that, just, just, that just means you weren't really using much. You didn't have to use your thoughts. You weren't yeah. learning. 
You're doing something that's just become automatic already. Yeah, that's why it was easy. You mm-hmm. weren't you weren't learning. In your case, if you're reading a PowerPoint slide, all you did was read. Yeah. And maybe it's because you really know the topic, but reading a PowerPoint slide and going, that didn't feel so bad, doesn't tell you anything at all. Mm-hmm. So when I'm editing a video and I feel like it's kind of a garbage fire in the middle, it's probably a good sign. Yeah, it just means you're <laughs> pushing your brain. And obviously, like, human brains are lazy and we don't mm-hmm. want to feel discomfort. But that discomfort is when we're pushing ourselves somewhere. Yeah. Things shouldn't feel too easy. Yeah, that's a really good thing. Yeah, I've noticed, like, the past, you know, maybe maybe from, like, the end of my burnout last year through, you know, going back a few years almost, editing the first cut of a video always felt very easy because I would just sit in front of the camera and talk through my outline and my script. And I kind of knew, like, that's that's the underlying core of the video. And because of that, I was able to cut a decent version of the video in like 30 minutes and i'm like that that could go online it would be boring because it's just talking head but it could go online and the style we've been trying to do lately we're mixing in voiceover <laughs> we're mixing in all yeah, this kind of stuff it's ridiculous now. it's ridiculous but the, the thing i was noticing is we'd get like like tony would make the initial rough cut and i'd watch it and i'm like oh this is awful this like there's so many awkward points and things like that and uh, i realized like oh that's because we're, we're crafting something more worthwhile and there's going to be a stage where you just don't know what it is yet. So there are going to be all these transition points where it's just like, it just doesn't feel right yet. And I was reading this uh, thread in the r slash editors subreddit, which is for like professional editors. And they were talking about how like a lot of directors these days seem to be a little bit impatient because they'll look at a rough cut and they'll be like, this isn't, this isn't good. Maybe I should fire this editor. Uh, and there were some older school or like old school editors in the chat. And they were like, yeah, you know, directors worth their salt understand that like, or was some director who said, I think it was Scorsese who, uh, said like, if you don't want to kill yourself when you watch the first rough cut, you're not doing it correctly. Well, <laughs> sounds like a fun process. That'd be, that's, yeah. But, but that gave me some perspective on it. I'm like, yeah, you know, if you're cre- if you're crafting something that is suitably complex and you're trying to, you know, knit together this convincing narrative out of all these different pieces there's gonna be a part where you know in the process where like you have everything on the timeline and really the question you're trying to answer is does this work narratively like do we need to go reshoot stuff do we need to cut this section entirely not does this transition feel finessed enough because you're just not that far along in the process yeah so that that was helpful to to hear from professional editors but it's been cool going through this process that even though it's frustrating, I kind of know like I'm actually learning and upping my game instead of just doing the same thing I've been doing for years where it's get the air roll, okay, nailed, it's good. And like you said, if it feels easy, then I'm not really learning. Yeah. So uh, a couple other things with the retrieval. Um, we've talked about this before. You have a video on spaced repetition. Mm -hmm. So spaced repetition uses the spacing effect where the, basically the longer you wait before you try to remember something, if you successfully remember it, the stronger your memory will be. So you can do a sort of clever schedule where you start out reviewing something like daily for a few days and then every other day and then every other week and then every other month. 
and you're that's the strongest way to build the memory. Mm -hmm. And so there are really good things like that, like Anki with flashcards, um, plenty of things to do that. And then for reading, more complex things, you can't put on a flashcard and test yourself on like that. Yeah, it's harder to build an algorithm around the exact days you should wait for that kind of stuff. Yeah, so um, Scott suggests that after reading a section from a book or maybe you're sitting through a lecture, try to write down everything you can remember. Mm. And now it's after. So if you are sitting in a lecture just typing every single thing the teacher says, then you're not necessarily giving your focus to what they're saying, nor are you practicing recall. You're just practicing transcription, which yeah. is which yeah. is different entirely. And maybe this makes me sound like I was a terrible student, but this is the reason that I just didn't really take notes in almost any class mm. because I was just listening to the teacher. I was just trying to hear the words because I found that if I did try to take notes – it would kind of give my brain permission to, eh, I'll learn that later. I mean, I have the notes right here. Yeah. Only to then never bother to learn it later mm-hmm. and, and because I didn't like reviewing my notes. So I would have done a little better had I waited until after a lecture and then tried to rephrase everything and write it all down from memory yeah. immediately. Because it's just, do you understand what just happened? Did you pay attention or were you just kind of letting words happen? Mm-hmm. And and a lot of this is very directed at the shortcomings of classes, not because classes can't be a good idea, but because they will work a thousand times better if we just put a little extra effort into our own personal learning process Mm -hmm. within the class. Um, I think that uh, my interest in applying what I'm learning from the subject in a very short amount of time, like after I learn it, is much more important than taking notes from yeah. what I'm reading. Like, if I'm reading a book and I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to use this, then it's almost as if, like, taking notes is sort of a stand-in for a lack of opportunity to apply what you're learning quickly after learning it. And if you have an opportunity to apply things, then perhaps taking meticulous notes is not as necessary. Yeah. Because even if you do, you're probably only going to be able to utilize a little bit of that anyway in a meaningful way. Yeah, and he did mention, like, if it wasn't just I'm going to read a section and then afterward I'm going to try to just write down what I thought the, the point was, then he was finding it easy to get kind of fixated on this meaningless date that's yeah. like it's information, but it's not really useful mm-hmm. for the skill. Um, yeah, basically this is just – this is something that I also do in language because I have to bring back the word myself mm-hmm. if um, – if it takes me too long to come up with a word in conversation, the best thing for me to do is not to look it up in a dictionary, but to try to word my way around needing to use that word, just describe it in a different way, and then see if I can come up with it later. And I can look it up later if I have to, yeah. but if I don't, I'm not practicing recall, and I won't strengthen any memories, and I will also potentially build a habit of learned helplessness where I think I need a dictionary every four seconds, which is not great for conversational fluidity yeah all right so what are we on number six yeah we're on number six and that is feedback ah yep we need frequent honest and useful feedback Mm -hmm. Um, good feedback does not need to be comfortable and in fact is often uncomfortable yeah so we don't want it but we do really need it 
Most of the ultra learning projects he talks about in this book are they're very intense and they allow the people undertaking them to get a ton of feedback mm-hmm. much more quickly than you would normally get. Now, uh, one example he gave of somebody with an ultra learning process, uh, project that wasn't himself, I don't remember the name, but they wanted to become a good speaker. And they didn't really have a speaking experience that much. They wanted to do Toastmasters sort of stuff and figure out how to speak well publicly. So instead of prepping a speech for a month or two and then, then every month or so giving a new speech, he dove right in, spoke several times per week, and went to different audiences to get different perspectives oh, just yeah. immediately. So uh, did he do the same speech each time? I don't think so. Or was it like extemporaneous? I, I don't think all of them would have been the same speech. It okay. was just writing and giving tons of speeches in tons of places hmm. because different audiences give different feedback. You, if, you're, if you're speaking in front of a bunch of seventh graders, you're going to get a different like value and type of feedback than you will from... Hmm like attentive adults who love the topic you're talking about, they'll pay attention. But a bunch of seventh graders, you'll know if you're boring. Yeah. Because they will not even attempt true. to pay attention to you. They'll be mm-hmm. harsh. And you need different audiences to get that kind of nuance. An yeah. extra bonus in this particular case was he became desensitized to the anxiety of speaking merely oh, yeah. because he forced himself to feel so much of it. Yeah. That it, yeah, desensitization happens with most things that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. So he was just... Probably felt tortured for the first little bit of that. <laughs> but he became desensitized and then was able to keep pushing even further. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some really helpful notes on what kind of feedback is useful in here. Uh, and I'm just going to read this quote. Uh, feedback often backfires when it's aimed at a person's ego. Praise, a common type of feedback that teachers often use and students enjoy, is usually harmful to further learning. Mm. So we we don't want to focus on stuff that's aimed at our ego. We want it to be focused on the quality of the thing that we're doing, not necessarily yeah. like you're great, but that is good. That's really good. That's mm-hmm. a thing that you did. That's useful. And then who is giving the feedback matters because if we're getting feedback from a peer or a teacher or our parent, those are all different social implications. Yeah. So – this would be why I didn't want to take speech class with friends. Like I hear about a lot of people wanted to do that because of the comfort. But for me, I don't want to give speeches in front of my friends because I didn't want to fail in front of people whose opinions I valued. But on the other side of that, I feel a strong pressure to impress strangers. So being away from my friends actually made me way better at speech class than mm. I ever would have been if I had filled it with a bunch of comfort zone bodies. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the feedback is really important, and getting as much of it as possible is something that we need to do. And that's going to be hard for some projects where you're working alone, mm-hmm. and you, you need somebody else's viewpoint. And it's going to be hard if you don't have time, if you don't go out of your way to maybe go to a teacher during office hours yeah. or to find some sort of mentor, anything like that. But without good feedback what are we going to do other than kind of flounder around in a circle and say, maybe that's better. I have literally no idea. Mm -hmm. I do have two ideas for getting some feedback on your own. So one of them is find a way to record yourself if you can. Oh yeah. If it makes sense. So this isn't going to apply to every skill, but uh, for singing specifically, I, I practice like every day, you know, in the shower, but, I can only hear myself from the perspective of the person making the noise. Yeah. 
and that is not indicative of how I actually sound. Um, and I also will be in a certain frame of mind given kind of what I want to focus on. So if I'm singing like a really powerful, like, you know, intense song with a lot of high notes, I might be in that headspace, but then I may not be focusing on how to transition to the softer parts. So I try to make it a point to go and record myself and I'll, I'll just let audition record and I'll just play songs on Spotify and sing to them in the microphone and I'll do like, you know, 45 minutes of that. So I'll often have like three t- like three takes of one song and then I'll move on to another one. And then I just sit there and listen back. You got to like and play that it will, super loud in the car with the windows could, down. Could, yeah, there we go. <laughs> no, I'll, This I'll like, is me. <laughs> hey, guys. Hey, hey, check it out. I'm pretty good, huh? But no, I'll, like, I'll sit there and listen back. And be like, oh, okay, the way that I pronounced that syllable was not right. You know, like, and sometimes you, you, know, you listen to a song and you know what the lyric is and you will you hear how the singer pronounces it and it may be the way that it has to be pronounced to hit the note correctly, but it's not the way that you would pronounce it in speech. So when you're like doing it yourself, you don't even think about the way you need to pronounce the, uh, the syllable. You'll just pronounce it the same way you would when speaking. And it sounds weird. And there's a song by like hands like houses. And there's a, just like an instance where he says like the word two, but it's a really, really high note. So you don't want to say like two, it has to be like, I don't know, like toe or it works well when you're singing, but if you don't record yourself or you don't have a coach telling you these things, you may not ever notice what you're doing. Yeah. And I'll notice that a lot of times, like I sound on pitch to myself, but maybe I'm not opening my mouth enough and in my head it sounds on pitch, but it's actually a little bit flat because I'm kind of muffling my voice a little bit and then I'll do another Mm -hmm. take and all right, I'm going to focus on opening up more and being a little bit brighter. Oh, hey, now I'm much more on pitch. Yeah, yeah. Recordings are a great idea. Anytime, I've used that with language too, actually. Um, anytime you can get to compare your work to something, you need something to compare it to, mm-hmm. and you need to know exactly what you're comparing for. Then you can work on getting some feedback for yourself, Yeah, and it'll work. But And speaking of comparing, that that's the other idea for kind of like giving yourself feedback is finish a project and then... I know they often say like, don't compare your work to other people. And I think that's for, for like uh, self-confidence reasons, but on a technical standpoint, I think it does help to watch something you've created and then go kind of compare it against a standard that you you look to as like the, you know, standard of excellence in that field. Yeah. You're like, okay, how much closer did I get? And, you know, while trying to keep in mind that you're not trying to completely imitate the standard of excellence because you want to put your own spin on it. But when you look at individual things, like, all right, how did my uh, my timing feel compared to what I think is really good timing? Um, you know, if I'm editing a video, what elements of sound design did I kind of not even think of that they're using? And that's, I think it's still better to get feedback from other people, but if you just can't, then it might be a way to at least kind of give yourself a benchmark. Yeah. All right, so that was that was another group of three. So that was drills, oh, yeah, that... retrieval, and feedback, right? Yep. Good retrieval. You're going to learn we, this. And the first, the first ones were meta-learning, um, directness, and focus. But focus was number two. Mm, there you go. Meta-learning, I could have just focus, told you, wait, no, that was number three, but I didn't. And now Tom knows the order. Focus, through the directness, power of retrieval. drills, retrieval, feedback. 
All right, last group of three. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Number seven is retention. So okay. the um, another thing related to the, the spacing effect, but kind of the flip side, because people forget things. Uh, you may have noticed, or maybe you didn't notice. I've never forgotten anything. I've never forgotten anything. Steel trap. Um, part of this that I found interesting was that in, in the book you mentioned that there was a study that reported that doctors give worse medical care the longer they've worked as their stored knowledge from medical school fades away oh. and they're relying more on habits yeah. that have built up. Like, And they're going to gain certain types of knowledge, sure, but there are going to be some things that like, if they haven't run into it enough in their careers, they're just going to fade away because they weren't as relevant. Yeah. So that was... I'd never considered that before. That was pretty weird. But can we mitigate forgetting things a little bit? So hmm. the, the spacing effect helps. Um, that's one thing that we can do simply because the more that we retrieve things actively, the better the memory is. But there's another thing where um, one of the pieces of studying advice that he says is best supported by research is that if you want to have long-term retention, you shouldn't cram. Mm. You should spread your learning sessions over more intervals mm -hmm. to make the spacing effect work. And this is another thing that kind of justifies what I did in school a little bit because I also did not really study for most tests. I did for a few. I did for like uh, statistics. Some of the yeah. math ones I had to study a little bit mm -hmm. the day before. that. I, I didn't have a good reason to have all that memorized. Yeah. But I explicitly refused to study for language tests because I knew that if I crammed the night before, like I'm not giving myself. Mm. I want to know what the grade is because I want to know can I pull these words out of my head? Like, yeah. If it's not about just the grade, if it's not about just passing, cramming only tells you that you're capable of remembering something from yesterday. Yeah, which, I guess it's which true. Which is not that useful in a conversation if it's a language or, you know, in in anything mm -hmm. if you need that skill later. Unless you're going to cram before every conversation or if if my surgeon needs to cram... <laughs> Like, and he's just got the tech, he's just like, hold on, hold on. Nailed it. Okay, we're going to start. <laughs> I don't, I don't necessarily like that. Yeah. I mean, they might do well then, but I'd really like somebody who had more, mm -hmm. more in their head already knowledge. Yeah. To, to do these things. Okay. Um, so I mentioned Anki earlier for retrieval. Mm -hmm. It does mathematical things to give you the spacing effect with flashcards. And the, I found one thing really useful here was he was talking about how he wanted to maintain his languages after the language challenge, which is always something I've been annoyed by. Yeah. Maintaining languages is obnoxious. Mm -hmm. But I don't know why I hadn't thought to do specifically this, but he would schedule conversations once a week over italki, the same thing I use. And then he did that for a year, after which he dropped it to once a month for another two years just like did spacing effects via conversation. Oh, with conversations. Okay. And I don't know why I didn't consider that before. It seems fairly obvious to put the two together, but you never know. And that way you don't have to stretch yourself out with having, you know, four conversations uh, a week, yeah, every and I, week, I, forever. I, see, I did that for a while when I was just trying to keep it fresh, but I, yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah. So that actually inspired me, and I now have some fresh French and Spanish lessons that I'm going to do every couple of weeks just okay. to keep from feeling rusty. Cool. Languages are best when I can actually use them when suddenly necessary because mm. you can't cram before an emergency that requires something. I don't know. What if I meet a French person who's having a heart attack? I can't help them anyway, 
but at least we'll be able to chat. Um, another. Okay. You know, once once an actual medical yeah. professional saves them, then you can have a chat. Yeah, we'll just we'll we'll hang out. Um, so the other thing that isn't just the spacing effect here is overlearning things helps you remember. So mm. if you if you have the base piece of something and it's it forms a smaller part of something much bigger eventually doing the bigger thing will eventually make the smaller thing mindless like when i'm working through a piano song the beginning of the song if i keep practicing starting at the beginning i can play the beginning of practically every song i've ever played yeah because i played that Every single time I tried to get through and get to the rest of the song. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily the best technique for me to master each part of a piano song. Yeah. But if there's a little beginning part you have to do that many times, eventually you've learned it so much that you no longer need to even consider it. It just kind of happens. Like riding a bike mm-hmm. because you over you overlearn how pedaling the bikes. You don't have to think about it. Yeah. And you do it so much that it becomes mindless. If you can make something a part of something bigger, like I'm focused on where I'm going on a bike, not... Mm-hmm. Is the bike working? I need to check. That's not useful, but it becomes second nature. And then you probably won't forget it for years and years and years and years. Yeah. It's like uh, certain keyboard shortcuts. You yeah. Just, you, you use them every day. Well, yeah, and it's like so how like passwords, like the, one, the ones that I type in the most, I can't even necessarily picture the characters in my head i just know that you know my fingers moves. do them yeah and that could be considered dangerous <laughs> <laughs> but it becomes automatic mm-hmm. it's it's no longer something that i need to worry about spacing effect testing i just yeah it's mindless now this is something that i have to remind myself and my ego about when uh, doing bouldering routes in the climbing gym because often the first you know, I'll get the first three moves and then it's like move four or five or the crux or whatever it is. That's really, really difficult. And my brain's like, the only way that you're going to actually be able to say you did this is if you do the whole route. So I will stubbornly keep starting from the beginning when what I should do, because with bouldering, you can often just like use other holds that aren't part of your route, or you can sometimes even just jump up to the holds you need, or maybe it's a traversal route. So you can just start in the middle Start in the middle, practice yeah. that last half of the route until you get that, and then put it all together. And, you know, same thing with like a dance routine. You wouldn't like continually start from the first move when you're trying to practice the last move. Yeah, and it, it, in those kind of situations, overlearning happens completely by accident if mm-hmm. you just start from the beginning every time. But if you use it on purpose and you've just done it so much and you've gone so far and far and beyond, you may need to use retrieval or spacing effects to get the later parts of what you learned yeah but at least a decent chunk of it will probably always be there i imagine if i did not practice spanish or french for another five ten years i would still be able to be rusty in it yeah i don't think it would just it's gone Mm -hmm. or i mean even speaking like of something that i know i haven't used in many many years i can open up command prompt and traverse through directories yeah on Windows, yeah, because and I haven't done it in many years, but part, it's, I just did it so often because in it's college. just a smaller part of what you're doing. You're never like, I'm going to open this up and traverse directories. You're doing it for a mm-hmm. reason, so you don't even think about that. You just do it a million times. I don't think I'll ever forget dir slash a slash od. Just, just I just because I had to do it. Like it was my job. 
Yeah. You know, it was crazy because I remember when I got that job, I was watching people do that and I was like, these guys are wizards. This is so complicated. They're literally like hacking the matrix. And then you, you eventually learn it. Oh, wait, no, it's just a directory listing. And there's a command that lists the directory in a specific way or moves to a subdirectory or goes up. Yeah. I would imagine this is part of why people who become experts to stuff often can't explain the things very well. Mm-hmm. Just those because things, they're now, they're now mindless for them. They don't have to think about mm-hmm. it anymore. We had Ransom went skiing with me once, and I was trying to explain how to get back up after he had fallen. And then I was trying to explain how to do, like, your turns. And I was racking my brain as hard as I could trying to explain every component of the move. And it just wasn't working for him. And then uh, a ski instructor who was just patrolling by stopped because he was having trouble. And this is why people go to school for teaching specifically. Because I used to be like, why can't you just go to school for chemistry and then be a chemistry teacher? He just knew exactly He's like, put your ankle like this, this angle, lean this way. And I'm like, I would have never thought to say those things. <laughs> it just, I just do it. My, my conscious brain doesn't know I'm doing it. Yeah. So, there, yeah, there's a, there's a big component to like a, the expert, what is it, the expert paradox? Where experts don't know how to explain what they're doing. I don't, I think I might know it by another name, but I mean, that makes perfect sense. There are mm-hmm. probably a million names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably right. Um, okay, so number eight, intuition, which mm. was actually, I found this the most resonant for me. Okay. Um, basically, you should go, you should have a very deep foundation of what you're doing before necessarily building on that skill a whole bunch. Um, there was a quote in the beginning from Eric Bishop, a mathematician, that is... Do not ask whether a statement is true until you know what it means. Hmm. So uh, we're trying to seek a deeper level of understanding here so that we can avoid things like the Dunning-Kruger effect, where if you don't know about something, you don't know what you don't know. You've barely, oh, you've yeah. barely just glanced at the surface. You can't even imagine what lies beneath it. Yeah. So you think, well, obviously, I know how that works. I know how my TV works. You press these buttons. But if you've never even considered, wait, but how does that, like, really work? Yeah. You have no idea how much you don't know about it. It reminds me of that there's, like, a, a line in the movie um, about Alex Honnold do, uh, doing the free solo, which that's the movie, free solo, uh, free soloing El Capitan. And one of the filmmakers was saying, like, you know, people who don't, know about free soloing people who don't really know what alex is doing think you know that's that seems doable that seems fine people who do know what he's doing and have like been in rock climbing are absolutely terrified that he would even attempt it yeah because like, like once you understand you're seeing somebody who who can do it mm-hmm. well of course it looks easy at this point yep yeah watching somebody do something like oh, i understand those movements but there's so much you don't understand yeah and um, so there was a study on people solving, or they weren't solving the physics problems, but they were given a bunch of physics problems. Mm-hmm. They were, these were physics, I, don't, I think they were undergrad students, I don't remember exactly. But they were asked to sort the problems into categories. And they found that beginners would sort them by superficial features, such as whether the problem was about, about pulleys or maybe inclined planes. 
the experts focused on the deeper principles. So they'd be like, ah, mm. conservation of energy over here. And they'd be sorting it by the underlying concept mm-hmm. that would help you solve the problem, not just, oh, this, look, a train. These are trains. Yeah. And the experts were thinking several levels deeper, mm-hmm. and that's why they were experts. And he talks a lot about Feynman in this, mm-hmm. in this section. So he talks about how Feynman didn't really master things by just following along with other people. He would mentally try to recreate the results himself, and sometimes he had to repeat work. He'd reinvent the wheel merely to understand the wheel, yeah. essentially. And it made him a lot, a lot slower. Like he, Feynman said, some people think in the beginning that I'm kind of slow. I don't understand a problem because I ask a lot of these dumb questions. But that's only because his threshold for what it means to understand something is much higher than just barely usable let's move on. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're trying to work with abstract ideas, it might be useful to try to think of concrete examples where they work. Or so if I was trying to imagine a structure, I probably wouldn't do a very good job until I tried to like build it with like Legos or something. I I don't think that I have the training and um, experience to be able to really picture a solid structure and figure out how it works Mm. and you get feedback a little bit from this because if you're trying to picture something that's abstract and give it a concrete example and you can't come up with a concrete example that's a pretty good sign that you may not actually understand the abstract Mm -hmm. concept so a lot of this you know because we're talking about Feynman involved like crazy science things yeah but like you were saying with the piano earlier reading through a music theory book and being like, oh, major seventh, minor seventh. This one is diminished. I could read all that and say, that made sense, mm-hmm. and then go to the piano and then not do anything and not understand at all what that meant. Yeah. And, and there's a deeper understanding. Like, I'm sure you have kind of felt this as you've progressed in your piano study. There's like a deeper understanding to a key or to like say, you know, a natural minor scale versus a melodic or harmonic minor scale. There's a deeper understanding than just understanding that it's one semitone shift yeah there's a there's an understanding that comes in in playing it and hearing it and hearing and repeating the relationships between those two notes in your perception of how they sound and what kind of feeling that can give what you're playing yeah like you can't get that just by reading it if you just if you stop at the top level of abstract stuff that you could have written about you're you're not going to get like a feel for it and Mm -hmm. i feel like a lot of the things that one gets good at, you sort of feel what you're supposed to do next. I can play most of the songs that I play on piano without looking, and I can shift chords and try a new one without looking, without thinking too hard about it, simply because I, I've i gone through it enough times. I understand what's happening. I'm not just hitting random notes and saying, do, they, do those sound good together? I get the relationship mm-hmm. between, like you were talking about, the triads and and all of the chords earlier, and understanding how inversion works rather than going, but that that one looks wrong. Oh, well, it sounds good. Yep. Understanding why it looks different than the other ones, and, oh, it's just this one, shifted a little bit, mm-hmm. is going to make it so that you can recreate it over and over. Mm-hmm. And this part resonated with me a lot simply because it's why I'm so slow at everything mm. all the time. I take forever to do things, and I'm just like, I don't, I I can't set up this thing yet. I need to know, like a thousand details 
about what this runs on. And then, yeah. you know, 800 details in, just like, ah, well, that changes everything. <laughs> and that's, it, it takes forever. But it's mm-hmm. basically the opposite of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Just yeah. assuming that there's going to be a ton that I don't already know, and I want to make sure I don't jump into something incorrectly if there are yeah. reasonably high stakes. It, it means you're not truly slow. Yeah. You just might not be the, you know, ready, fire, it's, aim It's like a person. tortoise versus hare situation. Mm-hmm. Except for in real life, that wouldn't work out that way. The hair would win. Or if you, but, if you think about like a linear progression versus a um, exponential progression. Yeah, it's like you know, I start, for a while, you start off slow works, and then it's faster. eventually you'll overtake. Yeah, where, mm-hmm. the, where the linear one is still going just the same speed as before. There are no advantages. There. Always think about that the example that uh, my church pastor did when I was like 10 years old or something where he's, he has the assistant pastor just like with a screwdriver screwing nails into a block of wood and he gets like you know three or four in while the the actual pastor's like plugging in a power drill and like putting a bit in there. Yeah. But then you know once he's ready, <laughs> oh, what you doing over there? Looking a little slow over there, you know? Yeah, like the setup the setup may take longer and that may be frustrating, but it pays off mm-hmm. and then you end up way better off. So All right, we have a final one final more. principle here and the final principle. I wonder if I can guess it. Guess like intuition. We have feedback already. We have retention and re- and retrieval, which are very. We have focus. Uh, all right, here's my guess. Rest. Nope. No. Nope. Okay. Ultra mm. learners don't sleep. <laughs> Never sleep. <laughs> There's. It's not any form of like step away from it for a while. No, I'm sure that's implied. Uh, okay. Here's. It's I have not one, a principle in my, here. I have well. one other guess. So my first guess was rest. My second guess was um, expanding into other topics to combine what you learn to gain deeper understanding. That's kind of true. That's kind of right. Okay. A little bit. It's like it's like half of what this is about a All little right. bit. It's experimentation. Oh. So okay. like that that falls under that umbrella. That is a way to do it. Mm. Um, Fairly close. I, w- I would say it's not a perfect it was, guess. It but. was a reasonably close guess, though, given that it was just a guess. Mm. Um, anyway, experimentation, obviously, is, you know, trying new things. Wow, yeah. I've never heard of that before. But trying many things can allow you to find the things that line up with you best, like mm-hmm. the things that they emphasize your strengths, they minimize your weaknesses. You can't quite know that without trying things out. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference between um, – see, the example he gives is the difference between a novice programmer and, and a master isn't usually that the novice can't solve service certain problems. It's just that the master knows the best way to solve it which will be the most efficient and which will be the cleanest and be the most sustainable going forward because they can pull that solution out from like the 10 potential solutions they thought of immediately. Which they've probably tried. The the novice can solve it with one. Mm -hmm. Novice me mangled a terrible website in WordPress by putting the source code, I think the source HTML for a bootstrap page into the WordPress editor (laughs) and positioning everything with... (laughs) CSS position relative and moving everything (laughs) pixels at a time. And every time I put something in, I had to move everything else again. And it it does work. It is a solution. Mm -hmm. But obviously, being a better programmer now, I I see that that was very possibly the worst solution I could have picked. (laughs) It just worked. But that's not good enough to be an expert at anything. That's kind of the beauty of, of like, problem solving and I think like the the more you get into something, the more you realize this. Like there isn't one way to do things. 
there there are often many different ways to get to the same destination. It's just yeah. that usually there's one that is better than the others. Yeah, this this is why I'm also super slow at things because now I'm like trying to make sure that I don't do something that quite that ridiculous yeah. anymore. Yep. Um, but he does list out three types of experimentation to narrow things down a little bit. Okay. The first is experimenting with new learning resources. Okay. So let's say you got a textbook or you're using Duolingo or you got a, you're taking a class. You, you pick your first resource. You use it pretty rigorously for some set amount of time that you know you're going to use it for. Mm-hmm. Set up and be like, I'm going to study using this for long enough that you would actually know if it's working. And then after that, you can review, did that work or should I move on to a different thing? Should I get a new tutor? Is that not working for me? Am I reading the wrong book, etc.? We yeah. just try new new tools. The second is experimenting with technique, so switching between the subtopics and subskills of something. They can help you in ways that you don't see coming because mm-hmm. you can. They might combine and unlock features in the other subskills yeah. that you didn't know about at mm-hmm. first. And the last is to experiment with different styles. Mm. Um, apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently Van Gogh was not all that celebrated for a long time, and he ended up trying many different painting styles before he eventually arrived at the style that made him famous that we know for, like, uh, Starry Night, et, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That style came after he experimented with tons of different styles to imitate other artists and see, how does this work? No, that doesn't feel right. Over and over and over and over and over. Mm. Eventually, we liked the work, but had he not gone through all the styles, he wouldn't have found the ones that lined up with his strengths. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Cool. And that that is, you know, a super quick rundown of a fairly intensive book. Um, like, we've easily gone on for a while, barely scratching the surface of all of these. So you can go deeper, just so you know. By reading Listener. the book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm trying to remember. What's the eighth one? Because we had retention and then something and then experimentation. Uh, oh, no. I'm cheating. I'm not going to help my own retrieval here because I'm just You're not looking. not going to help your own retrieval. I'm going to forget it. Uh, I feel like it had to do with we – we talked about the expert paradox in there. Um, all right. Let me go from the beginning. We had meta learning, we had focus, we had directness. That was group one. Yes, it was. Okay. Then we had drills, right? Yep. Um, boy, human memory is bad because I, I had these and I reviewed them and now they're. It's really great that you don't remember this one. <laughs> um, there is there's a retrieval. Yeah, there it is. You you retrieved it. Good job. And then there is Oh my gosh. Uh, why did I I had this in my head. He's choking. Mom's spaghetti. Yeah. He's on a sweater already. He's nervous. But he's ready. Watch out. You're going to just you're going to forget this spaghetti. list. You're going to be too busy remembering about spaghetti. Okay. Meta learning, focus, directness, drills, retrieval. Um, 
my gosh. The last one was experimentation. Now I've lost six, seven, and eight. Oh no. See, this is this is the problem. Well, that's it. That's the end of the podcast. <laughs> You're just gonna sit here for we just twenty minutes of dead air as Tom like tries to remember them. <laughs> yeah. Uh they they often say that the human like short term memory can only hold like six to seven bits of data at once, and this is a really good example of I why never that is true. A full list ever. I always miss one. Like mm-hmm. at least one is gone every time I list something. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, we sat here for like an hour talking about these things. Yeah. All right. So what's? So I got to I got to retrieval. All right. One of yeah. them is retention. Right? That's seven. Was that seven? Yeah. So like five was retrieval, seven was retention. Very, very similar ones, right? Yeah. They're like flip sides of and the coin. And then nine was experimentation. Uh, was one of them like just practice? Um, that is neither six nor eight. Okay, what are six and eight? Feedback. Feedback. And... Intuition. Now, this is probably the least effective wrap-up of the (laughs) because we've just mixed them up now. (laughs) Intuition. That's right. Okay. (laughs) Meta-learning. Focus, directness, drills, retrieval, feedback, retention, intuition, experimentation. That's number, Wang. (laughs) (laughs) We did it. That's number, Wang. Okay, we did it. Anyway... Uh, I guess if you want to learn more about these or potentially have a better chance at remember them, remembering them yourself, go read the book. It's called yeah. Ultra Learning. It's by Scott Young. Apparently, it's good. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I would say that it has uh, – I mean, I'm taking more light language lessons again. That was okay. a very good result of this. Mm. And I'm excited to ultra learn stuff Yeah. this year. I don't know what yet entirely. Um, I don't know how you many weren't... productivity books I'm going to read. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of branch out from that. I just was interested because I saw the drawing, mm. which, by the way, if if you couldn't see it when I held the camera up to the or my phone up to the camera, or if you're listening, you should definitely check out the show notes just to see the ridiculous difference that he made between his drawing of human faces in 30 days. Yeah, the, the amount because you can that's do what sold me days. on this book, mm-hmm. and and what was like my little system of doing stuff for two weeks at a time. This is proof that small amounts of time, if you pick the right things for them, can actually change things. Yeah. So it, it got me motivated at minimum. Even if you read this and you get nothing else from it, that's inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, those show notes, speaking of the show notes, are going to be at cigpodcast.com slash 288 because we're at the 288th episode. Yeah. And we are not in the business of doing different numbers on the end of our URLs well, that, that don't mix, <laughs> don't match. <laughs> that would be. But our next podcast, very episode one, confusing. is going to be at slash 722. It's going to be a random mix mash. Every episode uh, number will just be like a Pokemon that we wanted to honor. Yeah. But it's going to be encrypted too. Like you're going to have to find a secret key in the episode that decrypts a random string of letters. And then if you feed that into How to Google lose Translate all of your 18 times, step one, <laughs> back to English. <laughs> anyway, check out those show notes. Uh, thanks for listening. As always, you can go over to CIGpodcast.com with no trailing slash or numbers if you want to find out how to subscribe to this show. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict. I don't know what else. 
all the things stitcher spotify anything youtube with a cast all the things if you want to comment on this podcast the youtube channel is probably the best place to do it um once again cigpodcast.com has a link to it or you can just type in the college info geek podcast into youtube probably in the search bar probably not like as your name on the profile that won't get you anything yeah probably not probably not it might though but probably it almost might. almost certainly not yeah the um the propagation of entropy is a probabilistic rule it's not a certain thing so anything is truly possible yeah anything is possible it's just you know there's a non-zero chance of literally basically anything but it's a point i wouldn't zero, i wouldn't zero zero zero, zero I wouldn't roll the dice something. on that one yeah it's a many 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 sided die so how many sides would it have a lot how of do them. I, how do I picture that shape? It's just a sphere. The number of sides that are possible it's basically to fit just into, a sphere. It, yeah, it's it's it, imperceptible. But it, the molecule know, on top is the any side, any any sphere that exists in the real world has it's just like, a, it must have it's just a die a number of sides. Right? It's just a die. It's just that we we didn't count enough sides. We're just lazy. It's true. Break out the magnifying glass. That's I got what you should take from this lesson. Right there. Spheres count the sides. Are the dice. that's episode 288 technically yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right anyway thanks for listening if you want to support this show we are on apple podcasts and they have a rating review system so one way you can help to uh spread the show i guess around is to give us a rating and review on apple podcasts which i believe bumps us up the rankings somehow otherwise you can just share this podcast with a friend maybe they will become a listener as well and that about does it so thanks as always for hanging out hopefully you enjoyed this episode and we will see you in the next one stay cute